Welcome. Welcome listeners to Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. I'm your host, DJ Moran, and thanks for joining me on this episode. In today's episode, I talk to Tony Biglin, the author of a fresh new book titled The Nurture Effect, How the Science of Human Behavior Can Improve Our Lives and Our World. It is on sale now. March 1st is when it went on the market, and if you did not pre-order it, so you could have it on the day it was released, like many of my peers did, then order it now. This is the book of the year, in my opinion, with relevance to applied behavioral science. I put the link to the book so that you can order it now while you are listening to Tony's interview. Just don't order it if you are listening to this podcast while you're driving. Tony and I are both dedicated to public safety, and we'll be fine with you ordering the book when you arrive at your destination. It really does deserve the hype that I'm giving it. I was fortunate enough to receive an advanced review copy back in the summer, and I'm excited that it is finally out. Uh, It was a great read. The book takes uh, behavioral science to the masses. Tony talks to educators, parents, uh, policymakers in this book. He gives ideas on how to deal with improving cooperation between peers, how to deal with tobacco problems and junk food, why we need to work with the poverty gap, and how it will have a long-term impact, if we do, on societal and environmental issues. And he writes about other social ills and what to do about them. It is an ambitious book, and it is one that delivers. The Nurture Effect, How the Science of Human Behavior Can Improve Our Lives and Our World, is just wonderful. And if you look closely at the title, you see the wink and the nod to B.F. Skinner, too. This is a book that's going on my office desk bookcase, not on a shelf in my library. It's great stuff. Tony was gracious enough to entertain my questions in this interview, and I hope you find it helpful. Tony, you've written a remarkable book about how to make the world a better place. It's called The Nurture Effect, How the Science of Human Behavior Can Improve Our Lives and Our World, and it has been put on the market by New Harbinger Publications. What inspired you to write such an ambitious book? Well, you know, I turned 70 last year, and I have spent much of my career, I I, I got into behavioral approaches uh, after I got my PhD. Uh, Bob Kohlenberg got me started reading Skinner, and I had done research on uh, the characteristics of academic areas and had used... um, Uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, um, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, to organize an analysis of the characteristics of academic areas. And I realized that there were paradigmatic areas and non-paradigmatic areas. And I did multidimensional scaling with the judgments of scholars to to create a three-dimensional analysis of that. And the one dimension, the the primary dimension, was paradigmatic and non-paradigmatic. And guess what? Psychology was about in the middle. It wasn't really all that paradigmatic compared with physics and chemistry and so on. And I thought, well, that's probably about true. And when I started reading Skinner, I realized that 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 Skinner was, in fact, proposing a paradigmatic revolution, that he was saying, uh, no, we shouldn't be trying to study psychology from the standpoint of the motivations inside people that make them behave, but rather 
uh, study them in context. Right. And I then went on, I, I would, got my degree in social psychology, but I went into, uh, I, I got retrained in clinical psychology and went on an internship at the University of Wisconsin and spent a year reading uh, pretty much the extant works of behavior therapy at the time. This was 1972. Okay. Um, and um, so I, you know, suddenly I, you know, I'm, I'm a behaviorist. And what excited me about it was that I, um, that, that this was, it was possible to really improve the world in ways that I hadn't, that I, that I aspired to do uh, before then, but it seemed to me that, that Skinner's analysis was a, a way forward that was far more uh, promising than what I had been doing in the work I was doing in social psychology. I should also say that I was the president of the students for Robert Kennedy at the University of Illinois, and I've always been interested in, uh, in changing the world. And if you see the, my video, which is on my website, uh, nurtureeffect.com, uh, you'll see that uh, he inspired me. So, you know, those were sort of the mix of things. And so as the evidence has accumulated, um, it's been exciting. And I, I was on the Institute of Medicine Committee on Prevention that issued a report in 2009. And the committee, uh, one of the conclusions that the committee drew was that uh, if we can Im implement all of the things we've learned, that we have the potential to create a society in which virtually every young person arrives at adulthood with the skills, interests, and health habits they need to live a productive life in caring relationships with other people. And I've done a lot of work in trying to uh, promote the findings of the IOM report and to try and, uh, you know, uh, increase the use of prevention. Uh, and, and, and by the way, I see treatment as relevant, uh, just as relevant. I mean, treatment is prevention, and uh, if you look at it that way. Right. So anyway, all this stuff came together, and I think there's just an enormous amount of evidence that, that even many behavioral scientists aren't aware of. So that was one of the main things that inspired me to write the book. Yeah, it is chock full of information that I think behavioral scientists, even the well-read ones, will learn from. Um, so it is, it's really an impressive book, what you put together. Thank you. One of the fun parts of the book happens in the very last chapter, in my opinion, when you envision a vastly improved society in the United States. I'm, I'm not going to call it a utopia, but you talk about how things are much better than they are in 2015 than uh, in the future. And, and in the book, after you detail that scenario that happens over a decade from now, you, you ask this question, and I'm quoting, is such a scenario possible? And then you go on to say, quoting, I think something of this sort is not only possible, but inevitable. I cannot look at the progress made in public health in the last 500 years and in behavioral science in the last 50 years without feeling optimistic that all nations will focus increasingly on improving the well-being of their citizens, unquote. So I'm wondering, what is it that gives you that level of optimism? Well, you know, don't isn't something like the next sentence uh, that these aspirations are great, but you know we actually have to take action. I, I there's something like that in there. I, I can't remember exactly what I said. Sorry to truncate the quote. I just wanted to. Oh, no, no, that yeah. that's fine. But in other words, um, uh, I acknowledge that um, you know this is aspirational, uh, and uh, I could be wrong. I've certainly been wrong before. 
Okay. Uh, I was uh, I started a gun control organization after Robert Kennedy was assassinated, and I thought I mean if anyone had told me where we would be with guns in this country now, I I just never would have believed it. So yeah. no, I I'm I'm not always right, but but let me explain why I think that this is is it, it's in the nature of science to make progress on things and sometimes that's slow but it's steady if it, it, it eventually happens and I can't imagine that I mean if you look at public health and all of the ways in which we have learned to control infectious diseases and of course we see some backsliding on things like measles but uh you know, public health is uh, in the control of epidemics is is far beyond anything that we had uh, four or five hundred years ago. And I think that we have the knowledge with respect to psychological and behavioral problems to make similar progress. And I just think that that's it's is quite likely to happen. Okay. Um, Are you? It, Think about uh, the cholera epidemics. I use the example of, of uh, John Snow' discovery of uh, uh, contaminated water as the cause of cholera, and it, um, I've got a graph in that video that uh, there were about a hundred thousand deaths in England due to cholera in the first half of the 19th century, and when he got people to understand that it was contaminated water that caused cholera, the epidemics ended. Now, it was still 1920s before all the sewers, all the sewage system in, in Paris uh, was, you know, being properly dealt with. So it's not like this happens overnight. And, it, and cholera is still a problem in, in parts of the uh, less developed world. But there's a steady, um, in, uh, there's a steady influence of, of the th things we know. And so, right. you know, the book is really saying, look, we have these, these interventions, and if we could get them widely implemented, uh, there's every reason to believe that, that we would uh, produce historically lower levels of uh, depression, of substance abuse, of academic failure, um, of antisocial behavior. Right. Um, and, I, and I suspect that what will happen, and I see this happening in a number of states, uh, is that there will be increasing evidence as these things get implemented that, you know, things are improving and that, that as that happens, uh, that more and more places will adopt practices that are working. I testified before the Oregon legislature yesterday about this very issue. Hmm. And I was able to present to them, uh, four, uh, of the programs that I describe in my book that are being implemented in Oregon, all of which have good cost benefit. Uh, the nurse family partnership uh, costs about $10,000 to provide to a high-risk pregnant mom during her pregnancy in the first two years of life. And the return on investment is about $56,000, according to the Washington State uh, Public Policy Institute. Neat. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that makes me optimistic. Okay. Neat. It sounds like you are basically, ha you have this kind of perspective based on humankind's track record i mean if uh, past behavior is a good predictor of future behavior and in the past we've capitalized on science in order to make the world a, a better place a more pro-social place um we're going to continue uh, in that direction okay well I, you know um i think that if we do these things if we implement these things 
we could have a much less aggressive population. We could, I, I think one of the things I, I've been uh, writing about a bit lately uh, is intergroup conflict. And we really haven't made that much progress on that, but we haven't really applied science to it. Right. So, I, you know, I think that's vital. And I, there are many people in the, uh, the CBS community who are uh, starting to look at that. And, um, but, you know, if we can apply the empirical methods to that in the same way that we have to conflict in families, uh, for example, I think we can make some significant progress. Yeah, I'd like to see that happen. I do notice that you recently wrote a blog on how to apply science to interpersonal conflict. And at the end of um, our interview, and definitely on the webpage for listeners, I will link to that blog so folks can uh, can read up about your ideas on that. Well, you know, I, I, I put something out on the, the ACT listserv about that because I... You know, I, I felt like um, that's something that needs to be discussed, but I wasn't that satisfied with what I wrote. I, there are some ideas, but I, I hope that other people in the uh, CBS community will, uh, you know, speak up and, and, and that collectively we can begin to chip away at this problem. Right. Yeah, I, I, I really like that vision of ACBS, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences, seeing what we can do as a small community, but still trying to have an influence on the larger community. I know that ACBS in general uh, is comprised of behavioral health uh, clinicians, and, and that's fantastic. Um, and I like when people take the idea to help out one individual in the clinic, and can we use those same principles as a foundation to help out families, and then beyond that, communities, and then beyond that, maybe counties, and beyond that, you know, humankind in general, um, and I well, see your book as heading in that direction. Well, and I think the empirical methods are also relevant because uh, there's, you know, I mean, uh, behavior analysis and contextual behavioral science are, um, you know, looking at uh, the situated phenomena and it, and the con context for it and the ways in which the context can be changed to change things. And so there's a tendency to work with individuals and then build up to interventions that might be tested in a randomized trial. Right. Uh, there are a lot of people in the prevention science community that I, I think don't quite see that the way behavior analysts and CBS people do. But the reason I say that is that there's nothing to stop us from identifying uh, intergroup conflict in, a, in one neighborhood or one community and using some of the strategies we talked about in an interrupted time series design and, you know, begin to see uh, some changes as a function of what we do, we can accumulate, um, you know, a set of strategies that then might ultimately be tested in a randomized trial or tested in uh, relationships between Palestinians and Israelis or, right, right. you know, name any two groups that are ready to kill each other. Right, right, understood. Yeah, we'd like to see the application of scientific principles on a broader scale as well. That's a, a really good uh, value and goal for us as scientists. I'm going to pick up on another thing that uh, I read in your book. You tell a story um, in the book about going to dinner at the Four Seasons restaurant um, in New York City and how there were $200 bottles of wine on the menu. You then talk. Oregon. They were from Oregon. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. You got uh, 
Got a lot of really uh, uh, neat vineyards out there. Is that what's going on out in Oregon? Is that why you're there? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> when I moved here in the 70s, there were none. And yeah. now Oregon is producing some very good uh, wines. $200 bottle of wine. Yeah, it must, it must be very good. I guess. I, I can't tell the difference between a $200 bottle of wine and two-buck chuck, actually. Um, Nor can I, and I assure you we didn't spend $200 on a bottle of wine at the Four Seasons. Right, right. And then you talk about that that, that particular uh, situation, too, when you talk about it's unlikely that people can discriminate the difference between a, a you know $200 bottle of wine and a $100 bottle of wine, and that ordering such an expensive wine at the Four Seasons is probably about status. And then you say, and I'm quoting, people living in the moneyed culture of Wall Street are motivated to go for bigger bonuses, unquote. And then I'm paraphrasing, and then they probably are influenced to create problematic practices on Wall Street that get their company a great deal of money. But those particular practices create bigger problems for other folks. But I'd, I'd like to just highlight this. I don't think it's just the money culture of Wall Street. I mean, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I've been working since I was 11 years old. Uh, people just try to game the system no matter what sector they're in. When I worked in school districts outside of New York City, educators were sometimes taking shortcuts and hoping the union would protect them. My fellow electricians, when I was a blue-collar worker, would leave early and have their friends clock out for them at quitting time. When I drove for the United States Postal Service... People game the system. I mean, heck, when I was the director of a nonprofit mental health network, my competition sometimes gamed, gamed the system to increase revenue. So it's not just a Wall Street problem. And I fear that saying that <clears throat> this is a human problem because I'm not really all that well-versed in the cross-cultural elements. I understand that certain cultures are probably more cooperative and pro-social. But it seems that it's more of a Western culture issue, and behavioral scientists sometimes highlight the problem uh, with schedules of reinforcement. Folks are more motivated to get things in the short term than the long-term reinforcers. I want, that was a lot, that was a lot that I just said there, but I, I'd like your reaction to that. How do we positively influence a culture or an environment that short circuits people's drive to just sometimes get the reinforcers, get the appetitives easier? quicker, faster, without so much effort. That's the way it seems that people act these days. How do we, how do we go around that? Well, are, are you defending that? I'm not defending it, but I am saying it's happening an awful lot. I don't think it's good. I'm not saying, hey, if you can make a buck on Wall Street and right. ruin everybody else's lives, more power to you. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it just seems so, uh, it, it, it just seems so, typical whether we're talking about blue collar workers having other friends chip out you know punch out for them teachers you know not doing the right thing because the union will defend them everybody seems to in one way or another at a time look at how do i get the reward without the effort that's the way we're working in this culture for a lot of my experiences well so uh, i mean this is this is a very interesting issue one of the one of the things that i i sense though in what you're saying is that that you feel perhaps that I've unfairly picked on uh, the capitalists on Wall Street. I don't disagree with you that um, people, I mean, I, I guess the way I think about it is people engage in the behavior that works for them. Uh, and, you know, very often uh, it is not 
altruistic behavior. That's the subject of David Sloan Wilson's uh, latest book. Right. Um, and you just summarized my point. People well, in general. Yes, absolutely. And I, and, and I don't say, you know, I was an expert in U.S. versus Philip Morris at all. And I reviewed thousands of pages of tobacco company documents and testified about the way in which tobacco companies' uh, marketing practices influence young people to start smoking. And there are, there are studies in, that include um, estimates of the population attributable risk, which is, uh, is a measure of the degree to which a risk factor contributes to a problem. There are studies showing that the marketing of the, the Joe Camel ads contributed something could be expected to kill something like 300,000 kids oh, as a, you know ultimately about a third of the people who start smoking ultimately die of smoking related illness so you know uh, this is killing people right yeah yeah and the the justice department lawyers would get irritated with me because i didn't seem to be angry at the tobacco companies i didn't seem to be angry at the lawyers for the tobacco companies i had good reason to be they were torturing me in depositions and cross examination <laughs> but but I, I don't find myself angry at any of these people because, you know, if, if you have a client come to you and they're doing something really mean, or cruel to somebody else, and they want your help, you're probably not going to say, you know, criticize them heavily about it. You're probably going to try and get on the same side of the room with them and see the world through their eyes so that you can make contact with values that you're pretty sure they have that are, you know, pro-social values and see if you can help to nurture those values and, and behaviors in ways that work better for that client. Absolutely. Is that a fair? Absolutely, without a question. And in fact, Dennis Turch tells me that he's working with hedge fund managers in New York City and they become more, you know, compassionate and altruistic when they do that. Right. You know, so I, I, I read the the depositions of the uh, executives and the tobacco companies and, and, you know, they're making great money and they're believe they believe in some sense that uh, what they're doing is uh, legitimate and they, you know, the cigarette marketing doesn't affect kids smoking, which is, I mean, the empirical evidence is absolutely contrary to it. Right. But, but, but we, and, and, and so what we need to do are find, I think, nurturing ways to move people toward practices that are more in the interests of society. Right. The second half of my book is really an evolutionary analysis of the practices of capitalism and how we have evolved in some problematic directions over the last 50 years. Right. There were reforms of capitalism that came out of the uh, progressive era in the 19, between about 1890 and 1920 and out of the uh, depression that significantly reduced the the possible harms that uh, capitalist practices could do to society. But many of those policies were uh, abandoned in the late 1990s and led to uh, practices that made it easier for people to to game the system Mm -hmm. in ways that were, you know, valuable to them, but harmful to other people. Uh, You know, they, I, I don't know how much more you want to go into that, but um, it, it the behavior of people on Wall Street is behavior, and right. we should study it like scientists the way we would anybody else. And as practitioners, I think we should 
I, I'm not asking anybody to get pitchforks. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for ways in which we can um, achieve policies that ensure that, that capitalism is working for everyone and, and also to, to simply try to make contact with the leaders of major corporations uh, to, uh, to, to, to cultivate and, and, and support values that are in the interest of you know, the well-being of everyone. And, and that's happening. I see okay. that happening with increasing attention to economic inequality uh, and with uh, the development of things like B corporations, where uh, the corporation is not um, at risk to be sued if they adopt a practice that may not maximize their profits but does benefit uh, society. Right. I remember that part of your book. It's it's an important part of, uh, to read in that, and I hope that the listeners uh, purchase the book and, and really check out um, what can be done in order to improve uh, the capitalist society. Many of the ideas you're presenting right here and now and in the book have a very political nature to them. We're talking about public policy. And at the end of a few of the chapters in your book, you highlight how people can apply the principles in your book and for the listeners of this podcast, what would you encourage them to do in order to have a better impact or influence in the political realm? Well, let me say two things about that. Maybe I'll forget the second by the time I'm through the first. <laughs> um, the, um, one of the things that I am hoping that people would do would be to create a network of people worldwide who are committed to the notion that that we need to in, increase the degree to which our families and our schools and our workplaces and our communities and neighborhoods are nurturing. And I, I can be, I've given in the book a, a precise operational definition of that. And the first one is that, the first aspect of it is that we reduce the use of conflict and coercion. And the second is to increase positive reinforcement. And the third is to reduce influences and opportunities uh, for problem behavior, which includes policies on Wall Street. And the fourth is to cultivate psychological flexibility. And I think that that we need to have, you know, millions of people get it, that those are things that we need to do and to sort of, as they go through their day, you know, be mindful of the person who waits on them in a grocery store uh, is a human being that, you know, how, how's their day going? And, you know, yeah. That we really, I, I think that that what the reason that I you know got this concept of nurturing environments is simply that it's it's a simple, but I think scientifically sound way of uh, summarizing what we need our relations to be about. Okay. But the question was about politics, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And how do how do we get uh, behavioral scientists more involved in politics? Well, you know, when in my growing up in this in psychology, it was always said that you you know well we're we're not political and 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 you you know it was a nasty thing to for anyone to be political. Um, you know, psychologists didn't do that, and I think actually that that was a legacy of the McCarthy era uh, when academics uh, were. Uh, you know, drummed. Many people were drummed out of academia because uh, they were involved in politics. So we said, "Well, we're not going to be political." But the behavior of politicians is behavior, 
and the evolution of the practices and policies of uh, our society with respect to the economy and with respect to how much we do to improve the well-being of people, uh, those are actions of organizations that are as, as analyzable in terms of their context as the behavior of a child is. We haven't gotten as far in doing that, but, uh, but, you know, but there are reasonable analyses in those terms. So I think one of the things that behavioral scientists can do is, is, is understand the larger social system in the same contextual way that we've come to understand the behavior of individuals and small groups right. and to, to try and identify uh, manipulable variables that can move uh, the uh, policymaking in directions that are useful. I think that we uh, need to... Uh, cultivate a, a generation of, of contextual behavioral scientists who are uh, skilled in making the case uh, for the kinds of policies that we need uh, to ensure everyone's well-being. We have the highest level of child poverty of any uh, uh, developed nation. Uh, we've added something like 2 million kids to the poverty rolls since the Great Recession. Um, and that is that harms people. That makes them less psychologically flexible. It makes them more likely to engage in conflict and aggression. And so, um, if we say, "Well, we want to reduce the level of conflict in families," we know that um, reducing the economic strains on families is one of the things we need to do. And it, so, it's an intervention, just like uh, an intervention of a psychologist working with an individual family. Right. Right. Tony, lots of excellent ideas. I really appreciate you saying how um, behavioral scientists need to develop a framework on how to get involved in politics with a, with a behavioral approach, a scientific approach. I really appreciate you saying that. I think that the nurture effect is that kind of framework. Um, it, you've written a very impressive book. I uh, thank you for joining me here today. You're a genuinely cool person, an erudite scholar, and I'm really hoping that uh, people will check out the book, The Nurture Effect. Uh, it's a great piece of work, and I appreciate you joining me here today. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your, your doing this and asking these very, I think, very stimulating questions. So yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Tony. Best of luck with the book. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening. And if you liked the interview with Tony, Trent Codd interviews Tony on CBT Radio. You can find Trent's and my podcasts on iTunes. And if you just click the link that I put on the Functionally Speaking website, you can also find Trent Codd's interview and lots of others. He does a very neat podcast. And if you are going to Amazon to buy The Nurture Effect, Click through the ACBS website to go to Amazon, and our nonprofit will get a little bit of the proceeds. You win, Tony wins, ACBS wins, and ultimately, if you get the book, we can work together to improve our lives and our world, so we'll all win. Until next time.